Hello, and welcome. I'm Bill Coles, your host of Story and Fiction, the podcast, the podcast that brings you literary fiction stories read by the author. This is installment two, podcast number 33 of The Spirit of Want, a novel by William H. Coles. In this installment, Lucy McMeal, a woman lawyer, continues to make unwise professional and personal decisions. Chapter 23. Lucy. The plane landed in Ghana an hour late. In the terminal, Lucy saw McNeil, written in magic marker on a cardboard box lid, held by a thin black man in a loose-fitting white T-shirt and knee-length khaki pants, his feet in tattered plastic sandals. She glanced around for Howard Bain, but he was not in the small crowd that was quickly dissipating at the door where she entered. The back seat of a ten-year-old sedan had lost most of its padding, and Lucy felt the coiled springs when, within a few minutes, the car encountered rough roads, many unpaved, and stones and clods of dirt banged against the undercarriage. The smells from the oil leaking on hot motor parts nauseated her, and when she took deep breaths, the humid, stale air seemed to stick in her lungs like paste. She thought she could adjust but she was no better after two hours. How much longer? she yelled to the driver. His face was pocked with scars, and his hair was hacked at shoulder length, bushy and uneven. She thought he was fifty, but it was impossible to tell. You be sitting back and enjoying ride, he said. How long? Lucy said, leaning to the side to avoid having to yell to the back of his head. He turned only partially. It'd be hard to tell. Look like rain. The clouds were low and the color of gray mold on old bread. How long does it take without the rain? Lucy asked. Sometime road flood in the valley. She had expected Howie to meet her at the airport. He hadn't said that exactly, but his last letter had said how he missed her, how he dreamed of being with her again. My God, how she missed him. It was beyond reason how she could be in love with a preacher, a philanderer, a stubborn, opinionated bully with deceitful charm. He was ruggedly handsome with gross features, loud at inappropriate times, and often untrustworthy. Why couldn't she just be without him, let her life go on? And why was she traveling in the wilds of Africa to be with him? Well, he had seized her thoughts. And why didn't she miss her family more? It was sinful, really. She rarely thought of their dull existence, their chronically compromised lives. She wondered if watching Howard manipulate the crowds, shelter the weak, give hope to the hopeless, would thrill her the way it always had in the States. His lovemaking was rough and all about him, but she craved his passion and his desire for her. It was all touch and smell and sound for him, and she loved it. "'sweaty, bruised, and bleeding as she sometimes was. "'It was inexplicable when she thought about it like this. "'It made no sense. "'But she couldn't wait. "'The car slowed and came to a stop. "'A goat bleated. "'She sat up and peered over the rusty hood of the car. "'A herd of maybe twenty blocked the road. "'Blow your horn,' she said impatiently. "'Don't be doing good for goats. "'They stubborn.' 
Lucy got out of the car and walked up to a man with a stick in his hand, crooked in places, but the full length from the ground to two feet above his head. Can't you get them to move, she said. The man smiled at her with no comprehension. Lucy waved her hands as if to shoo the goats away, but his expression did not change. Do you speak English, she said. No, anglais, he said. Lucy articulated slowly. Move goat. Make goat go away. The driver had come out to look over the herd. No me, the stick man said. What? Lucy said. They don't belong to him, the driver said. Can't he do something? We wait. Not long, maybe. But they ain't liking to be pushed too much. Rain began to fall. Large drops the size of pearls splattered on her face. You get in car, the driver said. Lucy closed the door. The wind from the storm blew the rain on her. She tried to crank the window up, but there was no handle. You be sliding over to that side, the driver said as he got in. From under his feet in front, he handed her a thin sheet of wrinkled newspaper for protection. My God, Lucy said. Twenty minutes later, the rain stopped as if turned off at a spigot. The sun blazed onto the countryside. The goats seemed distracted but energized, their coats soaked to their skins. Haphazardly, they dissipated as if they were drying into the countryside. We'd be going now soon, the driver said over his shoulder. Is it much longer, Lucy asked again. Lucy thought he wouldn't answer, but eventually he said, It'd be about the same. I believe, about the same. They arrived at the settlement at twilight. We'd be lucky tonight, yes? It no good driving the dark, he said. Really lucky, Lucy said. She was sure her driver was immune to sarcasm. They had stopped in clusters of shacks and a few one-story houses. You'd be good to wait here, he said. He took out her bags and got back in the car. Where are you going? Lucy asked. He pointed to the east. Go for petrol. Leave early with the light. Where should I go? Someone be coming. Can you find someone? The driver smiled and nodded toward the houses. You be having a nice stay now. He closed the car door and drove off. Someone was coming out of a shack away from the road near a clump of trees. A man bent over, pushing a wheelbarrow. He came up to her and put the wheelbarrow down. He stared at her. Who are you? Lucy asked. He went to her bags without response and placed them in the wheelbarrow. He left in another direction from which he'd come. Where is the Reverend Bain? She said to him as he left. He said something in his native tongue and then was out of hearing. Lucy walked down a single-lane dirt road toward a frame house with a flat roof, a door opening on the front with no door, and one half-open window on the side. Hello, she called through the door opening. The interior was black. Hello. Yes, someone said behind her. She turned quickly. A small black woman glared at her, her features indistinct in the dimness of the night. I've come to visit the Reverend Bain. Yes, he come back later. You come. The woman turned and Lucy followed. 
Do you work for the Reverend? Lucy asked, walking alongside the woman and adjusting to her methodically slow pace. He need me. What do you do? What he need me to do? Do you cook? Sometimes. The woman was in her forties, Lucy thought. The woman had not looked at her as they walked, and she kept three feet between them. Are you from here? I born in this place here, long time. They walked by many shacks and houses. They came to a wide one-room house with a dim light flickering. Do you have electricity? Lucy asked. We do sometime for a generator, but it's broke now, maybe two Sundays or more. They came to a larger one-story clapboard building that had two windows on each side dimly lit and flickering with yellow light, like an oil lamp or a few candles. A light-skinned black woman met them at the door holding a candle anchored with melted wax to a wooden holder with a stick handle. Miss Lucy, the woman said in clear but accented English, I am Colette. This is where you stay tonight. The woman who had brought Lucy had disappeared. Inside, guided by Colette's candle, Lucy was taken to a single bed with a small mattress. Stacked haphazardly at the foot of the bed was her luggage. There is clear water in the bucket near the sink, Colette said. I leave the candle for you. Is the Reverend Bain here? Lucy asked. He's not here. But you rest. He's sure to come back soon. Colette placed the candle on the floor. Is there something to drink? Lucy asked. I put drink in your bed. Colette leaned over and moved an open glass bottle half filled with orange soda near the candle. We put you straight in the morning, Colette said. Lucy dipped water from the bucket and swished it through her teeth, unsure that she could find her toothbrush. She took off her dress and laid it folded on the luggage. Colette was already lying on her bed. That woman who met me, who was she? Lucy said. She called Manny. She was not friendly. Is that what I am to expect? She not like everyone. But now, too, she does not feel good. She's sick? It was child in her. She vomits sick and did not sleep well. Child passed now. How irritating. This was not what she had imagined. She felt alone because of the dark and because everyone she had met so far treated her as if they were completing an unpleasant task. Colette, too, although responsive, seemed guarded and definitely withdrawn. Lucy lay down on the bed, blew out the candle, and stared at the ceiling. Colette's deep breathing was only a few feet away. When Lucy's eyes adapted, she could see Colette lying face up on her bed with no pillow. The moon descended below the horizon, and clouds moved to block the sky. In the new dark, the air still, the heat stifling, she heard the occasional faint noises of something alive moving. She let her tears silently roll down her face onto the pillow. She could not be sure when she exactly closed her eyes to sleep, but it felt like hours. Lucy awoke. Something touched her arm. Lucy! Lucy! Howard Bain whispered. Sweet Lucy! She reached up and touched the face she could barely make out in the dark. Come, he said. She sat up, 
her heart pounding. She felt for her dress. Leave it, he said. My shoes. Howie picked her up in his arms and carried her into the night. She wrapped her arms around his neck and kicked her bare feet into the air with delight. In a couple hundred yards, he carried her over the threshold of a house with a small porch and a portico. Inside, he stripped off her slip and panties and backed her against a wall she couldn't see and took her with all the passion only a long absence could amass. When he'd finished, her legs around him, her arms around his neck, she whispered, I love you, Howard Bain. And she laughed with pleasure, and he took her to a large bed she could only feel with the dark, and he carried her without ever letting her feet touch the wood-planked floor. Howie awoke at first light. He put on a robe. Lucy watched him go to the screen door, open it, and pick up a clear glass of milk with a flat stone covering the top. You're a milk drinker now, she said. Room service only for you, he said. Lucy sat up on the edge of the bed and grabbed a sheet to cover herself. I forgot to order, she said. He laughed. We eat in the dining hall with all the staff, he said. This milk is special. Manny brings it special for your coffee. I asked her. Lucy stood, now looking around, to collect what clothes she had been in when Howie carried her from Colette's house last night. Howie flipped a switch near the back door and a generator started behind the building. The windows had shades but no curtains. Beside the bed, there was a straight-back, unpainted wooden chair in front of a rectangular pine table, the surface marred with scratches and dents. There was a wooden bench next to a cabinet with a sink. Howie went to the cabinet and took out a small electric coffee pot and a bag of coffee. Howie plugged in the pot, poured water with a ladle from a bucket beside the door, placed dark aromatic coffee in a gold filter, and adjusted the glass pot. How wonderfully ridiculous, she thought. Nude, with only underwear to put on, in a shack, making coffee from scratch with the man she loved. She leaned back on the bed and gazed at the unshaven face, the dark eyes now mysterious with the absorption of staring at her. His lips full with a scar in the upper lip, slight but definite, from some injury long ago he hadn't told her about yet. She'd ask some day, but not now. There was so much she had to learn about him. She needed to know everything, every detail of how a master of human beings created a lasting, wonderful image, strong, rugged, interesting, and hers. What was it about Howard Bain that made her want to surrender to him every conscious moment of her day? She smiled as he brought the coffee and milk to her and placed it on a bedside table made from a tree stump. We have our own cow. Three, actually. Milk daily, he said. I know you like sugar, but I forgot to ask Manning to bring it. I used to like sweetener, she said, but I've given it up with a cancer scare in mice. Howie brought up the chair from the table, sat down and put his feet on the bed near her knees, cradled his coffee cup in his hands and grinned. Welcome to Africa, he said. Thank you, O king of the Christians, he laughed, a king without many subjects. I've seen Manny and Colette and the driver. They work here, they belong, but they always let you know they have an exit strategy. Many live off-site in their villages, and they serve their own masters. It's the way of this country. 
She sipped her coffee, bitter and strong. She added a little more milk. Is it only with foreigners? Who can tell? They're hard to fathom. They believe in Christ, but they believe in lots of other things. Medicine men, elders, respected men, almost always cruel, who easily grasp their attention and are always there for them. Don't you have real conversions? They almost all convert. It's a matter of intensity and degree of commitment. The Americans who came with me are the real converts. The natives see conversion as necessity, like a driver's license or a vaccination. You seem to have the respect of the natives. He thought for a moment. Yes, I think so. But there was always a level of distrust. She reached out and touched him. You sound so discouraged. We're doing a lot. It's more giving them what Western culture can provide than changing their chances of an afterlife. We do give them new direction, I guess, and we do make their lives better. Morality? I don't think so. They have their own roadmap for right and wrong. They have their own recipe for justice, which I find a little bizarre. Harsh? More emotional than based on evidence. He lifted his coffee cup for the first time and tested the temperature. It was too hot, and he settled it back on his lap. She leaned forward. What's up for today? Today is devoted to us, and tomorrow, too. Manny burst in through the front door. She seemed to have been waiting outside. Lucy watched her step directly to her, not looking at Howie. Finish, miss? Yes, Manny, and thank you. I'll keep the coffee cup. Manny picked up the still half-glass of milk and left. She that way all the time, Lucy asked. That was more talkative than I've ever noticed before, Howie said, smiling. A boy of 16 delivered Lucy's bags from Colette's shack to Howard's house in two trips. Howie put on shorts and a T-shirt and went to the dining hall to bring bowls of oatmeal with a slice of dark meat on top. There was no place to store her things. She'd have to live out of suitcases. While Howie was gone, she searched for toiletries and makeup. At first it was a feeling, some premonition that someone had gone through her belongings. Tops of bottles were looser than she usually tightened down. A comb was oddly placed in a side pocket. She went through a second larger suitcase with her clothes. Things had been refolded neatly, but there were clothes missing. She closed the suitcases and mentioned it to Howie when he returned. Not to worry, he said. He was sure someone had taken her clothes to be washed and pressed. Four-star service, he said. But it seemed more than that. She realized it was silly to worry and determined to forget it. Chapter 24 Lucy On the third day, Hobby went back to his ministry, which took him away from the mission settlement. Lucy insisted on something to do, and he introduced her to Carla, who was from Ohio and had handled most of the administrative work at the compound in Georgia. Carla seemed pleased to have Lucy's legal experience around. But there was almost nothing to do. Lucy found herself reading anything that was available, which wasn't much, and almost nothing that wasn't with evangelical fervor or directly related to the Bible. And within a week she began to spend most of her time without Howard in the room. 
She'd found decades-old volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica with interesting antique illustrations from the last century and bizarre descriptions about obscure and extinct things and ideas. On the fifth day, Howie returned after dark. Just before bed, she told him she was feeling useless. He gave her a kiss. Go with Colette. She needs help during the week. I'm not a nurse. She'll show you what to do. She's trained many others. Is she a doctor? Ah, no. She worked at a hospital for a while when she was in school. But she knows all the doctors around and gets help when she needs it. She gets medicines from the government health clinic. We get some supplies from the States. I don't think I can do that, Lucy said. But he offered her no other solutions. And in two weeks, out of restless boredom, she did start going on excursions to villages and towns to administer to the sick. She learned injections, and after a few weeks with Colette, she was able to administer routine vaccinations to an entire village. Her days were saturated with purpose for the first time since her arrival, and she became less restless. On a morning when Lucy and Colette were packing to make a trip to a distant village in the Volvo, Manny ran up to them and babbled in a local dialect to Colette. Colette turned to Lucy. Manny's child is delirious with fever. She had no one to bring her. I'll have to go before we start, Colette said. I'll go with you, Lucy said. What can I carry? They followed Manny, walking at a brisk pace as Manny ran ahead. Manny lived alone with her daughter in a single room hut at the edge of a cluster of shacks and lean-tos. Her daughter lay on her back on a straw pallet with one knee drawn up. The other leg was straight and swollen to double its size. A dirty sheet was wrapped around her shoulder, and in spite of her sweat-covered skin, she was shivering. "'She is called Pearl,' Colette said to Lucy. "'Pearl, what happened?' she said to the girl. She think a spider bit her, Manny said. When? She don't know. Lucy watched as Colette's skilled hands exposed all of Pearl's body and then focused on the leg. See pus? Snake teeth? Colette said to Lucy. Lucy could not distinguish anything definite in the inflammation. Will she be all right? Lucy asked. Bring water, Colette said to Manny. She took a syringe from her bag and drew up an antibiotic that she injected into the left buttock. When Manny brought water, she crushed aspirin in a cup and added water. Holding Pearl's head, she placed the cup to her lips. Pearl resisted and swatted the cup, which fell to the ground. Colette ground more aspirin and filled the cup. She talked softly to Pearl, calming her, and soon, after a few swallows, had the medicine inside her. We will need to bring back fluids with sugar and juice. She will need IV, too. She will not be able to eat until tomorrow, Colette said to Manny. She helped Pearl drink more water. She will need more medicine. She will need three cups of water an hour, and I will give you a cream to put on the bite. Can you do that? Manny was trembling. She nodded hesitantly. I must go on my rounds, Colette said to Manny. I'll come back with the fluids and be sure she gets treatment, Lucy said. I can do the IV. You can go on. After Colette left to attend her appointed village, 
Lucy returned to Pearl within an hour and gave dextrose and saline. She redressed the leg wound, smelly and gross, but she forced herself to stick with it. By mid-afternoon, the fever broke. Later, near sunset, Colette brought Paul and the jeep to carry Pearl to the infirmary. There was not room for both Lucy and Manny in the jeep, and, without speaking, Manny rode, and Lucy walked back to the settlement alone after the jeep had left. Pearl was laid out on a metal cot with a two-inch mattress near where Colette slept. Manny would sleep on the floor beside her. When Pearl was able to walk and eager to return home, Lucy went with Colette, and they helped Pearl back to Manny's hut. They walked back. Lucy said, Will she be back to normal? The sun was setting, and there was a gentle breeze that stirred the dust on the rutted dirt road. It will take time. She lost the child. Lucy looked at her friend. Was she pregnant? It was very small. Short like banana. But she lost blood. She will be weak for a long time. I give her iron. We must be sure she take it. They walked for a while. Who is the father? Lucy asked. She would not say. You must have some idea. Maybe the boy who delivered the bags. And how does Manny feel? She was surprised, but very sad not to have grandchild. Lucy continued in silence, sad for the likes of Pearls and Manny's, whose lives were cursed with so few comforts and joys. She silently thanked God for her own blessings, and she thought of Jennifer, wondered what she was doing now. She really heard from Luke, and she did not initiate contact with him. She had written Agnes and Elizabeth once, but she had not received any letters in return. She had only one picture of Jennifer, a snapshot now more than a year old. She would write Luke and ask for more pictures, and she would send a gift to Jennifer, something African and colorful, something to make her even prettier. Chapter 25 Luke Luke found a package in the mail at the condo addressed to Jennifer. Jennifer was staying with Agnes and Elizabeth for a few days, and he took the package to the hospital and went to the house to have dinner with Jennifer. Jennifer's got a package, he said to Agnes and Elizabeth as he walked into the kitchen through the back door from the drive. It's from her mother. Agnes came forward and took the package. We'll put it away for her when she's older, she said. She walked unsteadily into the family room, still recovering from her injuries. Elizabeth strapped Jennifer into a child's chair and tore a grilled cheese sandwich into small pieces and put a child's plastic container of milk before Jennifer. Luke motioned to Elizabeth to follow, and he went into the room where Agnes had gone. "'I think she should have it now,' he said to Agnes. "'It's her gift. "'It will only bring pain to her. "'A child whose mother has abandoned her. "'She does not need to be reminded she's alone.' Elizabeth joined them standing so she could keep an eye on Jennifer in the kitchen. "'It's Jennifer's gift, Mother. Let her have it,' Elizabeth said. "'Not from Lucy.' "'It won't hurt,' Luke said. He reached for the package, but Agnes backed away. "'You can't do that, Mother,' Elizabeth said. "'Lucy left her family to live with another man. She has no rights.' 
Lucy is Jennifer's mother, Luke said. She will always be Jennifer's. You can't hide that fact. How can you support her, Luke? After what she's done to you, it's embarrassing. Don't, mother, Elizabeth said. Lucy has so much more than you know, Luke said. Not enough to love her child or her husband, Agnes said. She just wasn't prepared for motherhood, Luke said. In the name of God, Luke. She was blinded by her need for sex with another man. Blatant adultery, without a trace of regret or remorse. Don't punish her now. She's reaching out to her daughter, Elizabeth said. There is nothing wrong with that. Don't get involved, Agnes said to Elizabeth. It's none of your business, Agnes, Luke said. She's my grandchild. She's my daughter, Luke said. Luke took the package from Agnes. We'll open it for her after dinner. Don't tell her who it's from, Agnes said. Of course I'll tell her, Luke said. Elizabeth carried the package into the kitchen. Agnes went elsewhere, her leather-soled shoes pounding the wooden steps to the second floor. Luke ate with Jennifer and Elizabeth. After Elizabeth cleaned Jennifer, they settled in the family room. Jennifer between Elizabeth and Luke. They opened Lucy's gift. It was a handmade sleeveless dress in greens and yellows. It was an exact fit. There was a note taped to the shoulder strap. For Jennifer, love, Mommy. She does think about her, Elizabeth said. She cares, Luke said. Jennifer always needs to know that. Elizabeth dressed Jennifer, and Luke took a picture. They would send it to Lucy, using the return address on the package. Chapter 26 Lucy Months passed. You enjoying the doctoring, Howard asked Lucy as they were dressing one morning. She was sitting on the edge of the bed. Her eyes were circled with gray and her face lined with fatigue. No, I'm tired of it, she said. I don't like traveling, and I don't like spending the nights. I'm exhausted when I get back. Colette said you really had the skills. The patients loved you. Not anymore. That bad? It's miserable, and these people stare at me. You're beautiful. Lucy sulked. Maybe once she was beautiful. But now it was a lie. No, I'm not, she said. My skin is dry and peeling. My gums bleed. I think my teeth might fall out. And I've lost weight. Howard took her hands and looked down on her. It's getting to you. She took her hands away. Don't say it like that. It's getting to you. It happens to all of us. To you? Sometimes. She'd rarely seen him down about anything. He was a steam engine on a downhill slope, always at full speed. She leaned back against a pillow while bringing her legs up onto the bed. My health is gone. I've got no spirit left. Howie handed her her usual cup of café au lait. I've got to get you better, he said. Really? How do you propose to do that? Lie down, he said pulling on his pants. I'll get Colette. Colette? You know what she can do. She's better than any doctor I've ever known. I need her opinion. The screen door clattered as the long spring mounted to the top, pulled it shut. In five minutes, Howie entered with Colette. 
What's wrong? Colette said. Without reason, Lucy began to cry. Leave us, Colette said to Howard. Go start your day. You might need something, Howard said. First thing I need is you be gone. Lucy lay with her eyes closed, still sobbing softly. Colette slid a chair across the floor from a corner to the bedside. She sat silently for many minutes, and Lucy felt the onset of blessed sleep. Colette must have waited for her to awake. Almost an hour later, a hot breeze gushed through a window, blowing loose papers that fluttered to the floor from a table. They were the first thing Lucy heard. She opened her eyes, disoriented for a moment. Do you know where you are? Colette asked. Of course I know where I am, Lucy said sharply. Lie still, Colette said. Open. She looked in Lucy's mouth. She took her pulse. She put her ear to Lucy's chest above her left breast. Then she listened to her stomach. Then she counted the sores and scabs on her skin. Do you want to talk? Colette said. Lucy began to cry again. Is it easy to cry? Colette asked. I can't help it. I don't want to. You're not with child, are you? Lucy forced a laugh. Never. Never again. Are you sure? I've had a ligation. Colette didn't understand the word. I had surgery so I would never have children. That too bad, Colette said. Sometimes I'm sorry. But most of the time, I'm never really sure I should have had the child I had. Colette stared at her with concern for a while. You're very sick. I think you must come spend time with me in infirmary. Without Howard? I need you close. I worry. I don't want to be without Howard. Colette nodded slowly. It is what you want. She poured water into a glass from a bucket. She held Lucy's head up. Here, drink. Lucy swallowed with difficulty. Rest. I'll come when I can, Colette said before she left. Howard didn't return until after five. Lucy was still on the bed, her eyes closed, breathing in rapid, shallow intakes. He ran to Colette, who followed him back. She's dehydrated, Colette said, touching Lucy's skin. I am not, Lucy said, close to delirium. I must take care of her. Bring her to me, Colette said to Howard. My God, Colette, why didn't you do it this morning? She did not wish. She's not herself, he said. Can't you see that? Colette covered Lucy with a sheet without speaking, and Howard carried Lucy to the infirmary and put Lucy in a bed a few feet from where Colette slept. Will she be all right, he said. Colette frowned. Ask your God, she said. He's your God, too. He does not speak to me, only to you. With constant care, Lucy improved. Colette took a blood sample that had to be sent by routine carrier to the city where her friend could send it away for analysis. She obtained the Reverend Bain's approval since the cost was high and for a non-member. He was insistent it be sent immediately at any cost and dispatched Paul in the jeep to make the seven-hour round-trip drive. Howard scolded Colette for not doing it earlier. She could have died, he said to Colette. Can you deny that? No, sir, she said. 
Thank your God she'd get better. I think she'd be up and around in a few days. Our God, Colette, he is our God. I forget sometimes he is God for all, she said. Chapter 27 Luke Mrs. Crowder died a few months after Lucy left for Africa. Luke found a replacement who did not work out well, and although Agnes suggested Jennifer come live with her and Elizabeth, Luke refused. He did not want to be separated from Jennifer. But Agnes had anticipated Luke's response, and Elizabeth had already talked to him months before, insisting she would be better suited to help take care of Jennifer than anyone he could find. Together, Agnes and Elizabeth persuaded Luke to move from the condo to Elizabeth's garage apartment, which they had already started to renovate. Elizabeth was already settled in the main house. Jennifer would have her own bedroom in the main house near Elizabeth's room. They had set up an impressive system of intercom monitoring to assure Luke they could hear Jennifer from anywhere in the house and garage. Luke moved in, and within a few weeks he sold the condo. It was the perfect arrangement. Jennifer thrived on Elizabeth and Agnes's care, and Luke was never concerned for Jennifer's learning with Elizabeth around. Most of all, he got to see Jennifer often. In August, Luke took Jennifer, Elizabeth, and Agnes to the beach for two weeks to the family house on Boar Island off the coast of Georgia near Savannah. The house had been in Agnes's family for three generations and had three floors, wraparound porches on two levels that faced the ocean, six bedrooms, and five bathrooms. Luke had a private room with a Tista bed and three large windows set in a front bay on the second floor. Agnes slept in a master bedroom in the south wing. Elizabeth and Jennifer stayed on the first floor in adjoining bedrooms. When the weather was fine, they spent mornings on the beach and afternoons on trips to Savannah and Charleston. Jennifer was old enough to know her mother wasn't around. Elizabeth insisted Jennifer call her auntie, but the word had become, for Jennifer, almost synonymous with mommy. Elizabeth loved Jennifer as her own. She had the unique ability to direct and shape an independent, competent personality in Jennifer, without the timidity, sentimentality, and indecisiveness that would plague most surrogate mothers. After mornings on the beach, Luke often played tennis with a neighbor in the afternoons. Days in the sun were exhausting, and he was always in bed and asleep by 10 o'clock. It was a Wednesday night. Agnes had gone to a hospital in Savannah to spend the night with a friend who was hospitalized with terminal cancer. Jennifer and Elizabeth had been in bed for hours. Luke awoke slowly, well after midnight, as if still in a dream. He felt a presence, a gentle caressing warmth, like a breeze on a summer night. He drifted into a complicated dream, a court case, a subpoena to testify, a decision to operate, indecision about the patient's best interest, a lawyer who seemed vaguely like his father. He was startled awake. The absence of a presence registered as he drifted back to sleep, as if hypnotized, and with the pleasant feeling he wasn't alone in the world. He didn't think to reach out. When he awoke well after sunrise, he sat up and looked around. He was alone. Two nights later, 
Luke was nudged awake by the movements of sheets and covers over him. He stared into the moonless dark. A faint tension held the room silent. Someone was beside him. He was not awake enough to sort out who it might be, unwilling to fracture his content by too much knowing. He quickly drifted into a deep sleep and awoke to an empty bed the next morning. As he came out to the first floor for breakfast, he saw Elizabeth in her room folding clothes. Good morning, she said, without looking at him. The next time Elizabeth came to him in the middle of the night, he awoke immediately, filled with a vague apprehension. His heart rate quickened, and he was conscious of his breathing. The space between them was real in so many ways. They lay on their backs without moving. He could smell her feminine attraction mixed with her resistance to what might happen. The comfort of his awareness became a longing, a spirit of desire lay between them. He knew now that he loved her, a love that cradled pristine respect, admiration, and beauty in the want. Her breathing quickened. She slipped her legs over the edge of the bed and sat up to leave. Apprehension seized him. He didn't want her to go. Luke reached out and found her upper arm. She stopped moving, and he held her gently. She was trembling. She sobbed. He slipped his arm around her waist and gently pulled her closer to him. He had never seen her nude, but the sensations of his touch in the semi-dark excited him with imagined images. She lay back down and turned towards him as he adjusted his arm to cradle her head. Her full length was against him. He kissed her forehead as she was crying. He felt her relax. Her trembling subsided. Together, through the half-open window, they listened to the soft swells of the ocean, the light touch of the wind in the live oaks, the rhapsodic calls of the cicadas. Chapter 28 Lucy For weeks, Lucy rested under the care and attention of Colette in the infirmary. She could only drink nourishment at first, but then the nausea subsided, and she was able to eat soups and stews that Colette prepared. Then, by sheer will, she was able to sit for short periods and take daily walks for a few hundred yards. Howard visited daily when he was in the settlement. He usually came after dinner. This evening, the sun had set. He pulled up a chair at a table close to Lucy's bedside. Colette had propped up Lucy on three pillows before she left to give them privacy. She's still taking good care of you? Howard asked. Lucy looked her affirmation. She's a special human being. Who God sent to us. Lucy smiled. I never get a sense that she believes in God, much less that he sent her to me. Not that she disbelieves. I don't think she needs verification of God to live her life. Like you, Howard asked. Lucy thought for a moment. I can see how you could think that. I'm not sure anymore. I don't know that that's wrong, though. He leaned forward and touched her hand. Never wrong, he said. But you preach the need for salvation. For many, God needs to be a palpable presence in their lives, but not for everyone. And not for you, Lucy asked. 
He leaned back. After a while, he spoke. That God exists in the hearts and minds of millions of people is enough for me to believe he exists. But you're not sure? I'm sure that he exists in the hearts and minds of humans, Howard said. But not that someday you might kneel before him and kiss the back of his hand? Why is it necessary to think of blood and bones? She rolled on her side to look at him. So what you preach so passionately from the Bible does not come from a God with a presence somewhere? That he's a myth? What difference does it make, Lucy? If the Bible is real to many, then it exists. That's enough to make the teaching legitimate and useful for us to direct our lives. The same with the Koran? My heritage gives me more faith in the Bible, but I'm sure the same thoughts would be applied to Islam. So you don't believe the Bible comes from a higher source than men? I believe the teachings of the Bible have collectively brought ideas that most, if not all, individuals are incapable of creating on their own. She rolled back on her back looking at the ceiling. Does God intervene in our lives? Again, he thought for a while. I prayed him to make you well. It seems to be working. That's not proof of intervention. He smiled. Who cares about proof if it's working? So you do have faith of someone or something that intervenes, answers your prayers. I don't know, Lucy. I do pray. It is easy for people to believe someone is out there who cares enough to take care of them, and I want them to believe that. Their lives are easier and richer for that belief. Is it healthy for humanity to take on mythical symbols and teachings and make them fact? They're confusing symbol and reality. God created earth in seven days as a fact for the fundamentalist. I don't see the harm. But is someone taking care of you, Howard Bain? Keeping an eye out for you, Lucy asked. I don't know. I really don't know. She sat up on the edge of the bed. I'd like to take my walk. Do you have time? Of course, he said. He helped her to stand, and she put her arms around his neck and smiled. I love you, Howard Bain. And I love you, sweet Lucy McMeal, he said. Chapter 29 Luke By the end of their time at the beach, Luke had surrendered himself to Elizabeth. She came to him in the night, as often as she could, even though they both believed Agnes knew. They were pleased when Agnes said nothing, and, for the last few days at Boar Island, Agnes volunteered to take Jennifer places to give them time alone. They played tennis. Elizabeth was quite accomplished with accurate ground strokes and intelligent choices of a surprisingly wide variety of shots she'd developed. She had played competitive college tennis and still played regularly. She always wore white on the courts, and she was quite attractive, with her skin tanned and her light hair bleached by the sun and untethered. Her level of accomplishment was like everything else Luke was discovering about her. So much value, always there, but never flaunted or even displayed. And he loved most the blue of her eyes and her petite, shy smile, always quick to appear and staying for a long time. They walked hand in hand on the beach in the late afternoon. How do you feel about Lucy? Elizabeth said one day as the sun was half an hour above the horizon. He didn't answer immediately. Would Lucy always be between them rather than behind them? 
He couldn't let that happen. Lucy had affected their lives too much already. I love you, he said. But you must think about her. What is that like? Her words had the tint of an inquisition, but it meant a lot to her. He could understand that. I think about her, he said, but not very often. I don't miss her or long for her, if that's what you mean. Mostly I wonder what it is about her that makes everything go wrong. Why does she make those terrible decisions? She's selfish, Elizabeth said and paused. But aren't we all? Not you, Luke said truthfully. She laughed, her hair ruffled by an offshore breeze. I've never understood why Lucy and I have never gotten along, she said. I've tried to love her as a sister, but she's difficult, and I wanted to understand why you loved her. She shook her head. Did you ever wonder how you would feel if she ever admitted you disliked her? I think about that, and it doesn't feel good. Luke stared ahead at the shoreline. I think I hated her when she first left, he said. She made me want her so much for so long. That's mostly gone now. What bothers me most is that she doesn't seem to be a mother to Jennifer. I'm not sure I can forgive that. Do you think she still loves you, Luke? Elizabeth's presence beside him lent a comfort he'd never experienced with Lucy. He could never have talked like this with Lucy. She never loved me, really. Sometimes I believe she married me to make me an unpalatable witness for the prosecution. But that's hard to think about. So I like to believe she was attracted to me as much as she could be at the time. What do you think happened with Bain? I think she needed him in some way we'll never understand. They strolled in silence for a while. She was always so intense and unhappy, he said. I've wondered about that facet of her, she said. I rarely saw humor, only sarcasm and ridicule. She was always on edge. Agnes couldn't help but remind her she was adopted, don't you think? I know it hurt her. She told me about the family the night of the accident. She thought A.J. discriminated against her because she believed one of her great-grandparents was black. I don't know about father, but mother was relentless. Lucy is so beautiful and so smart. And yet I think she has zero confidence, Luke said. I know she felt unloved by everyone. But you loved her. She never appreciated the value of that. He didn't respond right away. He had loved her, and in some ways he never lost yearning for the happy times they'd had together, time when she seemed genuinely unguarded and calm with who she was. He might still carry a wisp of nostalgia for those times, but he didn't love her as she was today. He couldn't transfer his caring for what she was in the past to what she was now. She's a memory now, Luke smiled, without feeling. Elizabeth squeezed his hand and put her head on his shoulder. They turned and headed back toward the beach house. I will never understand why Father treated Lucy that way, she said. I've never told anyone, Luke, and when I found out, I was finally able to love her in ways I'd withheld since our childhood. Father told me one night in an angry outburst. He fathered Lucy. She is my half-sister. I think it was on one of those conventions that the doctors loved to have in exotic places a few years ago, and he conquered a hotel maid, and he went back to her many times. 
When Luke saw her eyes, he knew it was true. No one else knows, he asked. No, not even mother. But worse, Lucy has never known. It was cruel. To protect his reputation, Luke said. Their pace slowed a little, and Elizabeth was standing close to him. And what might have happened if Lucy could have known she had a real family, had a sister, a father, Elizabeth said, that she was loved enough to know how to love others? He ruined her life, Luke said, almost as a question. There is no doubt he crippled her, and there is nothing that can be done now. You've stayed silent. What could I do? If I told her, no matter what her reaction, it could not change her for the better. She'd just be flooded with strong feelings against all of us that she'd be dealing with for as long as she's alive. The evening offshore breeze was picking up. Elizabeth leaned toward him as they walked so he could hear. I don't know how to feel about Daddy. He needs me with all this trouble at the hospital, but I'm afraid I can't give any more. I know I should, and it worries me. They walked on in silence, and by the time they reached the path from the beach to the house, Luke knew his love for Elizabeth had become an inseparable part of him, never to be doubted, and it would continue to grow with time, never to go away. He thanked God for Elizabeth. He'd been blessed in ways few others are allowed in a lifetime. Chapter 30. Lucy. Lucy continued to stay with Colette, who helped her every day and night. Lucy was still too weak to prepare food or travel to the dining hall for more than one meal a day. She was taking walks in the early morning and late evening to gain strength while avoiding the midday heat. Late one evening, Lucy left for a walk on her own while Colette tended an infant with fever brought to her for her care. The sun had set more than two hours before, but the sky glowed with a nearly full moon well above the horizon. Lucy met no one on the path. The few houses she passed were set well back. After a few hundred yards, she came close to the administrative offices, three one-story Quonset hut-style buildings. There was one hut where her desk still sat, unused now for months. There were no lights, but she heard Howard's laugh. Her heart tightened as another laugh of a woman rippled through the darkness. She must turn. She must go back. But her suspicion deepened. She walked slowly down the dirt path that led to the buildings. She could hear voices. A man's words were too fast to be distinguishable, but still exuberant sounds filled with pleasure, and the woman cooed and laughed. The windows were dark. She stopped twenty feet from where the sound was coming. Her imagination cluttered her mind with images of two mating humans distorted in bizarre positions. No, she halted her thoughts. I'm wrong. And there was silence. No more voices. No movement. Of course there was no one there. She had imagined it all. She froze for a second, cursing her suspicions. It was being away from him so long. She'd been ill, in and out of reality. She waited and heard nothing more. She turned, walking silently, so she might hear anything, but there was only emptiness in the building behind her. "'Was your walk pleasant?' Colette asked as she returned. "'Do you know if the Reverend Bain is here tonight?' Lucy asked. "'Yes, I see him.' 
When did he get back? I saw him at the dining hall. Lucy slipped out of her dress to lie down. Sleep did not come, even after Colette turned off the light and went to bed. The sound of Howie's laugh stayed with her, as real as if it had happened. Chapter 31 Lucy Lucy continued to improve, gaining weight, able to concentrate enough to read. She was asleep when Colette returned after dark from her monthly trip to the city. Colette shook her awake. Here, Colette removed medicine pills from a bottle. This will be good for you. Lucy took the ladle with water from the bucket and swallowed the pills. What was that? Lucy asked about the pills. The test returned, Colette said. What is wrong with me? I asked doctor about you. He speak long. He said he see cases. Colette took other pills from another bottle. You need these, she said. What are the pills? Vitamins, iron, your blood thin. You do not clock good, and you no fight infections. What do I have? The doctor took long look at your blood and hear me tell of your troubles. He is thankful you're getting better. What is it, Colette? Something you eat in the food. It very little, or it kill you first time. But no accident now. No, no. Now you're getting better living here with me. It no longer goes in, and you get better. No way it'd be accident. You mean if I hadn't come to the infirmary, I'd be dead? The doctor say, sure, she would have died, he say, exact words. What is it then, Lucy said. Poison. He say in Ghana it probably something to kill rats. Rat poison? We try hard now. Remember all you ate before you came to infirmary. I never ate rat poison. It bitter, doctors say. You eat strong foods? I always ate cereal for breakfast. Sometimes oatmeal. Sometimes canned fruit. I ate fresh bread for lunch sometimes. Soups, goat cheese. From what doctors say, you might know something different. I don't think I ever noticed any change in taste. In the evenings, I ate the stew and the pasta at dinner. Those spicy? You know, Colette, they are often spicy. That might be time for me to look. Lucy was sitting up now. Colette sat on a stool. Why would someone want to poison me? Could it be meant for someone else? I don't see it easy, Colette said. Maybe. But some people do not like the whites, Lucy said. I think no one just kill you for white. I'm afraid, Colette. I check food, look to cooks and servers. Can I help? You still sick. I do it quick. Lucy was still awake when Howard came to her at Colette's. He sat on the foot of the bed. Colette told me, he said, poison. I don't understand it, Lucy said. It must have been meant for someone else. It seems to have gotten to me every time. And you never tasted anything weird? A lot of that food served at night in the dining hall tastes weird to me. Colette has found no one else sick like this. It had to be the food, Lucy thought. How else could it have been done? Colette would know if others are affected, Howard said. 
She thinks now the person would have to do it while serving you, while you were watching. Did the same person serve you every time? It was never consistent at the dining hall. There are usually two or three serving. The person closest to the food at the time of my arrival served me. And I was usually with you when I was here. It must have been small amounts so I wouldn't taste it. And it had to be consistent for weeks, if not months, to have its effect. Colette returned. I searched kitchen, she said. There are jugs of rat poison in each room. Hammond said they kill three or four a night. At least those are the ones they find close by. Obviously it wasn't accidental, said Howard. The target was too specific. I'll get the cooks. We'll ask them, Colette said. One by one, Colette brought the cooks. Each one was puzzled. None appeared guilty. Each employee searched for ways it might happen, but came up with nothing not already considered. We'll have someone watch every night when you eat, Hower said. I'm not eating there. You can't believe I could do that, Lucy said sharply. I'll prepare food, Colette said. That way I know. Hower stood. I want you back home with me, he said to Lucy. He looked at Colette. It be soon for sure, Colette said. Two days later, Lucy moved back with Hower, and Colette brought Lucy food, only she prepared, twice a day. Chapter 32 Elizabeth Elizabeth went to Luke in the garage apartment after midnight, slipping into his bed, placing the monitor to Jennifer's room on the bedside table. You awake, she asked. He kissed her. I am now. She flopped up a pillow for her back, and she sat, pulling the covers over her, and took his hand. People are beginning to treat me strangely, Luke. Who? People at school, mostly. Other teachers, parents. Luke rolled over to see her better in the dark of the room. What did they say? It's nothing specific. It's how they look at me as if I had some terrible disease that they don't know if it will kill them, or they have some caution, as if I'm not what I appear to be. Could be your imagination. I don't think so. I think it's the rumors about A.J. They're afraid to ask me about it, and they're not sure who I really am. Luke rolled over on his back and put his hands behind his head on the pillow and stared toward the ceiling. It was in the paper again this morning, he said. Did you see the editorial, Elizabeth said? It called for investigation, prosecution, and major reform. Elizabeth had followed the papers closely. There were charges of racism surfacing. From the billing records, A.J. was quick to operate on poor blacks. What is going on, she asked. The ad hoc professors committee will meet soon. He's not confided in me or mother. We don't know what to think. He'll need you. He's never needed any of us. I think he's always depended on you and Agnes, since I've known him, Luke said. No, Luke. He's treated Mother as an intellectual deficient, and he ignored her, as if she were an irritating chicken squawking in a barnyard. And he's always thought Lucy superior to me in every way. He's told me in times when I frustrated him. Luke took her hand. It's inexcusable. It's not been easy thinking he might be a crook, Elizabeth said. 
a surgeon without morality. But no one is all bad. He's done a lot of good. He's been a teacher, a healer, a fundraiser. He's created a center for patient care. If he did operate on the wrong eye and then cover it up by doing more surgery and blinding a man, it will be hard to sort out, Luke interrupted. But the family knows, and someone in the department must know the truth. Luke was silent. Elizabeth listened to the soft whisper of his breathing. She loved him unconditionally. She would never believe he could do what her father was accused of. If Luke had, would her love protect her from ever accepting the truth and judging him in ways that might turn her love sour? She couldn't know. But she could not escape her feelings that she didn't have parental love for her father anymore or respect. Worst of all, she knew that she believed him capable of all that he was accused of. Is he guilty? she asked. Luke hesitated. I've come to believe he could have done it. Why? What about him made you believe that? Maybe it's always been in the background, but he fired a good and competent fellow who knew about the case. It was unjust, and he refused to make it right. You knew her? I helped train her. Is she doing all right now? I think so. But she was a few months from finishing. Leaving this program affected her career. I've never felt good about it. Elizabeth closed her eyes to the dark, her lids damp with tears. Luke sat up and put his arm around her. I don't know what to do, she said. You'll make the right choices. You always have. She wasn't sure. Maybe the right choice was to speak out. Lucy spoke out. She acted as if she hated father. In many ways, Lucy and her father were too much alike to ever agree on anything. Lucy was lucky to be away at a time like this. She wasn't expected to do anything. She hadn't pretended to love A.J. all these years. But I did, Elizabeth thought, and I can't remember if I ever really did love him. I just can't remember a time. What will you do, Luke? she asked. He'll expect you to back him. I don't know, Luke said. But it will come to that, won't it? Luke didn't answer, but she did not doubt he knew it was true. You'll be asked to speak against what you believe, maybe even lie, she said. He held her tightly for a few seconds. I love you, Elizabeth said. She could feel his heart beating. Chapter 33 Luke You ready for this? Luke asked Tim Roberts, chair of the committee and CEO of the hospital, who was already sitting at the head of the rectangular oak table. There would be eight members attending today. Tim laughed. God, no. It's a fucking catch-22. If we find nothing, people will believe I didn't look hard enough. A cover-up. If we find wrongdoing, it happened because I wasn't doing my job as CEO. No one can blame you, Luke said. They can, and they will. I've come close to resigning. Something blowing up this big always takes down innocence. The newspapers have been relentless, Luke said. They're focused on the medical legal aspects. That's the tasty stuff for them, and they can speculate for eternity. Eight members arrived within a few minutes. 
Some had already given reports verbally at another meeting. Surgical volume, visual results, re-ops. Today, sensitive information was bound to come out. There had been absolute secrecy outside the committee room. No discussions among the members was demanded by administration and pretty much adhered to. Tim called the meeting to order. The ocular pathologist went first. I've reviewed all the McMeal transplant slides, more than a thousand slides representing about 800 plus cases, all McMeals. 18% were trauma, scars mostly, but also corneal blood staining. All had pathology confirming the clinical diagnosis. Another 22% were post-infectious, and all the pathology matched the clinical findings. Almost all the rest were bullous keratopathy, Fuchs endothelial dystrophy, and the like. In these cases, 43% had no pathological changes to confirm the diagnosis. Tim, as CEO, didn't see the significance, and he spoke up. Does this mean that those graphs were done without indication? The pathologist nodded. I checked the charts. Visual acuities varied from multiple examinations, as would be expected. Some were photographed, but rarely with high-magnification slit lamp biomicroscopy. Besides, most of these conditions have fluid in the cornea, and it's hard to evaluate on path specimens for degree of fluid and its effects on vision. I checked corneal thickness measurements of all surgeons. When measurements were present, thickness seemed to correlate directly with poor vision. But there was a disturbing finding when I correlated those graphs removed by McMeal that had no pathology with pre-op corneal thickness and visual acuity. In 183, the corneal thickness was normal or within the airs consistent with measurement techniques. And, the pathologist paused, in 58 cases, at least two visual acuity measurements in the last two months before surgery were better than 2040. He was operating on normal eyes, Tim said. Functional eyes. There was always a surgeon's judgment, but no other corneal surgeon has these findings. The pathologist looked around the room. And to make it worse, even though his rejection rate was only a few percentage points above colleagues, many of these patients did not have functional vision in the eye after transplant. They were blind, Tim asked. Legally, 2,200 or worse. The glaucoma specialist rose to speak. The glaucoma statistics are not good. I found 42 graphs followed in glaucoma clinic that were referred for decreased vision after transplant surgery. All had been treated for graft rejection with steroids. Steroids caused the glaucoma, Tim asked. In a certain percentage of patients, if used long enough. Steroids are routine, another of the corneal surgeons countered. I know, Jerry, but 12 of these patients had cupped out optic nerves and were blind or only had light perception. The glaucoma caused by the steroids was missed. Often the pressures were in the 50s. The glaucoma specials looked to the corneal surgeon. You don't miss these patients. Your post-ops are not in our clinics. Cornea said nothing. Many of A.J.'s patients are followed by the fellows, Luke said. A.J. may not have known. He may be your father-in-law, but he still has the responsibility for the patients he operates or supervises. This was malpractice. 
Tim held up his hand for silence. Strong words. How many of you would agree this is malpractice? Raise your hand. All agreed. What about the indications, Tim asked Cornea. It's tough. We try to help people. Advice for surgery is individual with each surgeon. He was building an empire on income from clinical practice, NeuroOps said, grossing $3 million a year. And taking home a third of it, I've reviewed the figures with Barry. It's worse, pathology said. I looked at gender, age, and race. I compared AJ's stats with the others. 80% of his cases were on blacks compared to 46% for the other surgeons. All were Medicare or self-pay. No indigence. Not so with the other surgeons. I've seen his caseload and payment stats, Tim said. He operated on those who could pay the full surgical cost. Of course he did a lot of Medicare, Cornea said. That's the age group that gets in trouble. Don't pile on with wrong conclusions. But AJ's is almost twice that of other practices reviewed, Tim said. There was a discussion and agreement among most in the room. Tell us, Luke, Tim said. Tell us about the details of Sandra Perez's dismissal. I talked to her twice by phone recently. She's finishing her fellowship in Oregon. She's confirmed and clarified what I've already told you. I hear A.J. tried to block her appointment in California, Retina said. I don't know anything that would make me believe that, Luke said. But he did dismiss her. He did it through human resources without a trail. But two of staff readily admit he was the one to put the pressure on to dismiss her. I was told Modesto Sid wrote bad evaluations a few weeks before the dismissal. I talked to him at the time, and he admitted it. A.J. had written the evaluations for him to sign. But I asked him recently, and he refused to be involved. He won't confirm or deny A.J.'s activity. But A.J. was covering up, Pediatrics said, her face wrinkled with concern. There's no doubt, Retina said. Wouldn't you agree, Luke, even though he's your father-in-law? Luke nodded. I thought so at the time, and I've never been comfortable about it. But it would be extremely hard to prove. Even if Modesto was forced to speak out, a skillful lawyer could make A.J.'s actions seem within the boundaries of his duties as chair. They'd defile Sandra, too. It's part of the technique to justify A.J.'s action. She was a good fellow, Cornea said. I've always thought that, Luke said. Me, too, Pediatrics said. And all of her other evaluations were excellent. More opinions were expressed. Updated data were reviewed. What are we going to do, Retina finally said. We're not a jury, Tim said. Guilt or innocence has not been our charge. But the facts speak for themselves, Pediatrics said. Tim still stood at the head of the table and raised his hand for the attention of all. My responsibility is to the Chancellor at this point, he said. I need accurate reports from each of you, factual, supported. Write them yourselves. None of this can be leaked, and it cannot be lying around on a secretary's desk. Hand deliver it to me. I'll consolidate all reports in one and type it myself. I'll bring the original to each of you for signature as committee members. I will make one copy and secure it where only I and the Chancellor can access it. We've done our job. It hasn't been easy. And I thank each of you. 
They all stood to leave. And I know you know it, Tim said, but I must say it again. From a legal standpoint, and this information will undoubtedly be sought when the legal battle becomes intense, do not discuss this with anyone, even among yourselves. Justice must not be hindered by the rumor mill inflating or ignoring key data. The meeting adjourned. Luke went straight to his garage apartment after the meeting. A.J. had left a message on his answering machine to call him. He said he was calling from a phone booth at a convenience store near the house. Luke called. Meet me, A.J. commanded without greeting. He said he'd be parked in a school parking lot nearby. Luke undressed and put on comfortable sweats. He drove to the school. A.J.'s was the only car in the lot, and he had parked in the shadows of the school building. He stood by the side of his car. He got into Luke's car without a word until the door was closed. Drive around, he said. I can't tell if my car is bugged. Probably illegal stuff by private investigators. The lawyers say anything is possible for prosecutors to build a case. They've already started. Luke pulled out onto a residential street where there was little or no traffic after dark. They wouldn't bug your car, I wouldn't think. Not yet, A.J. said. What happened, he asked. Luke pretended he didn't know what A.J. was talking about. He said nothing. The committee, A.J. said. It's confidential, A.J. I'm family, Luke. We've been instructed to say nothing, especially to family and each other. So it's bad. If it were good, you'd tell me. Luke shrugged involuntarily. Don't tell me details, then, A.J. said. Just tell me what you think I should do. There is nothing I can advise, A.J. I don't know what's best. Are they going to make recommendations? To whom? A.J. seemed uncharacteristically threatened by this committee. For the first time in his life, A.J. felt the hopelessness of being out of control of a crucial situation like this. I can't say, A.J. No one will ever know. I wouldn't say anything. Even if they guessed it was you, no one would care. I won't go against my word, A.J. I can't do that. A.J. slammed his fist on the dashboard. Luke braked to a stop. Don't you ever go against me, Luke, A.J. said. I mean it. I need your support. Information has dried up for me. I've got to know what's going on. Luke angered, ready to lash out at A.J., but he held back. There would be nothing gained by arguing with A.J. God damn it, A.J. said loudly. Talk to me. Luke reversed direction to take A.J. back to his car. You'll regret this, Luke. I still have friends in power. You'll regret this more than you can imagine. Luke said no more in the few minutes it took to get to A.J.'s car, and A.J. left without a word. Chapter 34 Lucy Lucy's spirits lifted the first night she was back with Howie. She was too weak for sex, and he gave up after two brief tries an hour apart. She was awake, content in the pleasure of being near him. She felt safe, and for the first time in months, she felt that the possibility of imminent death was not with her. Howie was awake, too. 
a sliver of the new moon was visible in the window, and weak pewter light flowed into the room onto the floor. Her low-heeled shoes from before she was sick were still there. He had not moved them. How are the conversions? she asked. Slow, but steady. Are you traveling to the villages? Colette needs you back to help with the vaccinations and directing referrals. I've been working on the water supply to three villages. We're digging wells. The river water is not reliable, and the sewage is not contained in drains near where they work and bathe. Most of it's education, but the natives are difficult to take on new ways, and sometimes the language barriers are too much to be effective. Do you miss Georgia? Lucy asked. I miss the state sometimes. Has anyone come after you? I heard at one time there was an attempt at extradition, but we're too far into the interior to be found easily. But do you miss the rallies, the TV, the crowds? He rolled over to face her. You've always thought it was about the power, haven't you? It was. You can't deny it. You love the swell of crowd responses, the healing, she laughed. Did you ever heal a serious disease? She sensed the pulse of anger in him. I helped more than I didn't. You were curing homosexuality. I saw it the first night. I put ideas into minds that might or might not stay. But where's the harm? You treat them as diseased inferiors, crush their self-confidence. Maybe their self-confidence could improve if they thought they were more mainstream in their appetites. Really, it's about how you climax and who you do it with. So what's wrong with making a mental shift from a man to a woman? You're impossible, she laughed. She turned with her head on her hand, supported by her arm, and touched the side of his face tenderly. I don't doubt you anymore, she said. I'm not a fraud, he said. Many believe you are, she said. Well, not the ones I help. Will you go back if you ever can? He thought for a moment. I don't know, but I think I would. For the power, the glitter? Life is easier in the States, he said. That's what I think about. Lucy was asleep when she heard the generator kick in. Howie was brewing coffee. She sat up and wrapped herself in a tattered afghan. Howie handed her an almost full cup of hot black coffee. I'll get the milk, he said. I hope Manny remembered. She took a sip of unaltered brew. It was the first coffee in weeks. It was strong and bitter. Unused to it, she made a face involuntarily. Manny's out of the routine, he said, from outside the door. I'll be back in a moment. She tried another sip but put the cup down. The taste was unpleasant without her milk to blunt the bitterness. And she thought of how daily her bitter coffee and milk had been. And then it was clear. It was the only source of food that had not been investigated by Colette. Only a little milk, but the coffee was so strong she might never know if there had been a poison. Howie returned. He took her cup to pour milk from a glass. No, she said. But he had already started. That could be it. Poison in the milk. I would never detect it. He set the milk down in the sink. It's possible, he said. Could Manny want to do it? Not Manny. I don't think so. Is there anyone else? They hand milk the cows. One of the milkers would probably have access to milk before Manny brought it. 
any of the cooks. Goodbye to coffee with milk for a while, Lucy said. Can you drink it black, he said, handing her cup back. I'll pass, Lucy said. Later in the day, Colette brought Lucy lunch. Lucy told Colette of Manny's milk delivery. Colette went to investigate. In a couple of hours, she was back. It is possible, but I find no one who would want to. They are mystified. What about Manny? I do not know. Does she have a reason to dislike me? Colette looked away and down and stayed silent. What is it, Colette? Tell me. You're my friend. It is long time now. Tell me what I did wrong. I never hurt Manny. Oh, it is not that. No, no. What then? Manny think Pearl's baby come from the Reverend. She want that, to have grandchild smart and strong. She think that it happened when Reverend teach Jesus to Pearl. He wouldn't do that. It is not the Reverend's child. It the boy who delivers things, Colette said. The suitcases? He the one. He tell me. Colette thought for a moment. Manny think you come, and Pearl never get her grandchild she won. That's crazy. She simple woman, worried about the future. She should be stopped. I don't think she do it. She not mean. I just say she might have reason, but I don't think she the one. Will you ask her? Colette looked distressed. I ask around, she said. That night Howard got back from travel well after dinner. She blurted out the news to him. He was silent. Well, what do you think, she asked. You're too suspicious, he said. His defensiveness surprised her. It's possible, Howie. Colette told me of Manny's devotion to you. She wanted a grandchild of yours by Pearl. Howie did not respond. It was as if he couldn't find the argument to refute it. She wondered if Pearl had carried his child. If the charges in Atlanta were true, he might very well have taken advantage of a girl here, in essence away from the public eye. Those kind of men couldn't help themselves. You didn't screw that girl, did you? She said. His eyes blazed. Don't start with that shit, he said. Did you? Why would I take advantage of Pearl? She's not attractive, he said. She's a child, if you crave children. I never craved children. Well, you've craved women, lots of them. Not children, but grown-ups. I'm not promiscuous, Lucy. Don't try to imply that. Bullshit. You were screwing anyone who was breathing in Georgia. He turned away from her. I won't listen to this shit, he said. Did you screw someone here when I was sick? I thought I heard you. Then I thought I imagined it. You were delirious. Did you? Of course not. But she didn't believe him now. Even if he were innocent, she knew he was capable and would have done it if the opportunity arose. She was sure. And maybe Pearl did abort his child. Maybe he was guilty. After all she'd done to prove his innocence in Georgia, maybe she was blinded to his guilt and doomed to failure in front of a jury. She probably looked like a lovesick defender arguing for the acquittal of the devil himself, obvious to everyone but her. When he spoke, his voice was softer. You're not well, he said. He took her hand, but she pulled it away. 
I want to take you to Colette, he said. No, she said. He picked her up, one arm behind her back and the other under her legs. She fought to get down. Stop it, he said. With such vehemence, she froze. Now she was afraid of him. How different she felt the night she had first arrived, and he had carried her in this position into this room. She did not protest as he carried her back to the infirmary and Colette. Take care of her, he said to Colette, and he left. Lucy stayed with Colette. Howie did not speak to her for weeks. She asked Colette about Manny. Colette had not seen Manny since the night Howie had asked her to leave the mission. She afraid, Colette said of Manny. She's guilty. No, she's just afraid. How do you know that for sure? I ask her. She do not lie to me. Then who did it? It may be accident after all. Lucy angered. Don't lie to me, Colette. She's guilty and you know it. I do not lie, Colette said. Suddenly, Lucy was suspicious of everyone. Colette wasn't really her friend. She had always been cold and distant. Lucy determined to leave. She talked to Paul for him to drive her the five hours to the airport. She knew Paul checked with Howie, but he didn't refuse. Obviously, Howie wanted her gone. The next morning, before dawn, she gathered as much money from the various places she could remember, where Howie and Carla, the administrator, had hid it. She had 3,437 American dollars in a satchel when she climbed into the Jeep. As Paul cranked the motor, Howie came out of the house and stood motionless on the steps. She turned but did not glance back. He did not move. She wondered if he knew about her theft. If not, she was sure he would eventually find out. Paul engaged the gears. The Jeep lurched forward to a steady speed, weaving around the ruts in the road. Colette was nowhere to be seen. There was no one to say goodbye. Chapter 35 Elizabeth Elizabeth adjusted the covers over Jennifer, who was curled up on her side on the sofa in the main house rec room, and she heard Agnes's hesitant stride down the hall to the door of A.J.'s study. The door opened and closed. A real estate agent had put a lockbox on the house yesterday to begin showing on Friday. A.J. had put it on the market without telling them. She heard her mother begin talking, her voice more piercing and strident than she ever remembered. She leaned against the door, her hands clenched, her jaw tight. She imagined her mother standing in front of the mahogany knee-hole desk where her father sat in his leather-upholstered wing chair, where he had read and worked alone every evening she could remember. How could you do this, Elizabeth thought. She imagined her father's impassive stare, the smoldering, angry look deep in his eyes that had been there even in subdued times for months. It's my home. You can't sell it. Elizabeth heard her mother's voice clearly. A.J. would not move a muscle, Elizabeth was sure. A.J. and her mother did not talk now. Her mother's lawyers urged her not to abandon the home. There was silence. Her mother spoke. I won't let you do it, she said. There's nothing you can do. The house is in my name, A.J. said. But it is our house. 
Don't be your usual infantile self, Agnes. Any fool knows what you've done, her mother said. I have no other choice but to fight you. She imagined her mother would back away. Her mother never confronted her father after her hospitalization. Her mother feared A.J. Where will we live? Where will we put the artwork? I don't know, and I don't care, he said. Why are you doing this? I need the money. What about the investments, the savings, retirement? A.J. didn't answer. Elizabeth had never known the details of her father's finances. He had set up a lifelong trust for Lucy and her. He had dissolved Lucy's. She wondered if she would be next. I'm moving into a condo next week, he said. What about us, Agnes said. Work it out, Agnes. Take control of your life. And Elizabeth and Jennifer and Luke? Luke can no longer stay on the property. The lawyer has sent a letter. He'll take Jennifer, my grandchild. She's not your grandchild, Agnes. She's not from your real daughter. She is mine. Elizabeth could hear her mother sob for an instant. Then she could imagine her gaining control, standing tall. I hate you, her mother said. A.J. would not respond. That was the way to hurt Agnes. Mother told me marrying you was a mistake, Agnes said. She never liked you. Your mother was retarded. I doubt she ever had an original thought. Like you, Agnes, I abhor your vapid ramblings. Just get out. There was some sort of movement. Elizabeth thought it was her mother. You are soulless, Abner. I will fight you. You will not take what is ours. I will bring you down into the gutter. I've hated you for years. Her mother's family still held fortunes that went back to slave trade days. I will do just fine, Agnes. Now I must ask you to never bother me again. I do not want to see or hear you ever again. Are you capable of understanding that? I don't want you around. You're a sick human being. You are an idiot. Something slammed against the desk. Elizabeth imagined her mother hacking at the expensive antique with a fire iron from the fireplace. But of course not. Agnes was not that person. It was a fist or a book or something like that. May you rot in hell, her mother sobbed. The door opened and she walked down the hall, climbed the stairs, and Elizabeth knew the sound of her second-floor bedroom door closing with a slam. Elizabeth checked Jennifer, who was sleeping soundly on the sofa. She went upstairs and opened her mother's door without knocking. Her mother sat on the maid bed, her legs dangling, her hands in her lap. She was dry-eyed, staring at the wall, and rarely blinking. She did not look at Elizabeth, who pulled up a straight-back armless chair to the side of her and sat down. I heard it all, Mother. He stressed he didn't mean it. He's evil, her mother said. Elizabeth leaned forward and placed her head in her hands. She knew her father was not going to change, and she did not expect her mother to ever speak to him again without strong purpose. I'll go with Luke, Mother. We've been thinking about it, a place of our own. I'll manage, her mother said. We may look for a rental house in Roswell for a while. I can stay with Gladys. 
You can stay with us, Mother. We'll have room for you. We love you. No, I'll not be in the way. Not at all. You'd never be in the way, Elizabeth said. Her mother stood and began turning down the bed. The divorce will go through, Elizabeth. I've had excellent legal counsel, and from what we can tell, he'll be bankrupt soon. I've taken every precaution to protect my assets from Mother and Daddy. I want to be sure you will never be affected after I die, nor Jennifer. Should Lucy know? Not for me. That's for you to decide. She's family. Not really. She never liked your father. I think they were too much alike sometimes. But she turned her back on all of us. It was her choice. I don't feel anything for her anymore. Elizabeth leaned back in the chair. The wooden splat was uncomfortable and she frowned. I'm going to take a warm bath, dear, her mother said. You run along. I can stay here with you for a while. I'll be fine, her mother said, and Elizabeth heard rare determination in her voice. Elizabeth sat for a moment as her mother closed the bathroom door and turned on the tub water. Then she stood. Things would never be the same again. Chapter 36 Luke the university chance to receive the information from the committee about A.J.'s performance. The committee members had heard nothing from him. Not one committee member was contacted for clarification or additional information, and no action had been taken to restrict A.J.'s practice. The dean, in an emergency mandatory faculty meeting about the affair, didn't mention the committee's work. He fully supported A.J., and warned those in the department who were saying unsubstantiated things about A.J. to stop. Administration was backing A.J., no matter how loud the opposition, and they were covering up the truth. Most of the faculty did not feel good about it. The next day, Luke discovered that Tim Roberts, the chair of the review committee and CEO of the hospital, had been let go. He went to see him as soon as he heard. What's going on? Luke asked. I'm fired. No word from anyone other than this letter dismissing me. I go to the chancellor. He hints that my work on the committee was vindictive and that he could not let a smear campaign fester on his watch. You were more than fair, Luke said. It's getting out of control, Luke. Newspapers are calling for action. The ethics committee for the academy will be in soon. Administration doesn't want committee reports to get out or committee members to be interviewed. The State Board of Licensing has started an investigation, too. Who do I speak to? Luke asked. You didn't even want to be on the committee. Stay out of it, Luke. I've got a solid offer in Seattle that I'm going to accept. I'm gone, and you don't want to go against them. They're ruthless. A.J. barely speaks to me, Luke said. He was irate that I wouldn't tell him anything about the committee actions. We discovered wrongdoing. We were asked to specifically sort out truth from rumor, and we did that well. But what we discovered threatened all of them, their reputations and their careers. They've hunkered down into an aggressive cover-up. Don't let it ruin your career. Tell the others, too. Don't sacrifice for me. For weeks, investigations continued. There was never any indication that the committee report had ever been released. 
The day before Tim Roberts left the city, he brought Luke the only copy of the original report that he had been carefully protecting. He asked Luke to make copies for everyone on the committee and asked him to distribute them, which Luke did immediately. Now each member of the committee would have to make his or her decision about releasing information. Luke made his decision the same day and sent a copy to the chair of the National Academy of Visual Science Ethics Committee, which was scheduled to be in town conducting an ethics evaluation of A.J., who was expected to be the next president of the Academy. The next morning, A.J. called Luke. There was no need for you to send that report to Clarence, Luke. I've seen it now. Much of it is wrong. That A.J. found out so fast showed the power and connections he still had. Everyone worked without bias, Luke said. What we presented was documented. You think you ruined me. After all I've done for you, for Christ's sake. You can't change what happened, Luke said, or cover it up. Step up. Admit what you think is true. Make a big deal about what you're going to do to change the future. There was a long silence on the other end of the line. You'll regret this day, Luke, A.J. said. You'll rue this day. Luke hung up. Luke didn't see A.J. often after that, and when he did see him, A.J. never greeted him. But A.J.'s wrath relentlessly surfaced. Luke was tenured, and to dismiss him was complicated and next to impossible even for A.J. First, the administrator called to tell Luke there would be no bonus this year, the first time ever that a routine bonus determined by A.J. was denied to Luke. Luke checked with faculty members. All were getting bonuses. The same day, Luke was told the position for his administrator was terminated. She had been told, without Luke's knowledge, that human resources would help her look for another position. A week later, Luke's office space was reassigned, and he was given temporary smaller space in a Quonset hut that had been set up a few years ago to house offices while the new clinic was being built. He had no room for a secretary or an assistant. Luke was on the OR committee, and when he went to the routine monthly meeting, Terry Chapman, from the department, was there as the new representative to the committee from the department, recently appointed by A.J. without telling Luke. As a final insult, Luke received an official letter from the head of the OR committee that he no longer had surgical block time on his traditional Wednesdays, a critical move that would not allow him to schedule patients with any certainty and would make it impossible to do as many surgeries as he had become accustomed to after years of practice. Luke spoke to the dean and the chancellor. Both were cold and unsympathetic. The chairman of faculty council was outraged and promised to support Luke whenever he needed, but he was pessimistic about having any impact with administration. Eileen Thompson, the fellowship director who hated A.J., was supportive and wrote a letter to the editor of the journal Constitution about unfair labor practices. But it was not published. A.J. was calling in the chits he'd seated over the years. Luke felt the turn of the screw. Chapter 37 Lucy In Atlanta, after two nights in a motel near I-75, 
Lucy found a furnished apartment in the complex that would rent by the month and require only a one-month returnable deposit. She paid cash. Now she had $236 left from the money she had taken before she left Africa, and she went directly to her father's office at the hospital. A.J.'s secretary said he refused to see her. Lucy demanded to know where he was. I'm his daughter, she said. And, for an instant, she wondered if the secretary knew she was the adopted one. But the secretary's face gave no clue. The secretary had some clandestine way to notify security. Two uniformed guards appeared and escorted her out of the building. She knew where her father parked. He'd had a reserved, exclusive spot for years. She walked into the multi-story parking garage through the vehicular exit and walked to a shadowed spot close to where he might show up. A car was in his spot. She had to trust it was his. For three hours, she stood and crouched, kneeled and sat with her legs extended. Her mind roamed her predicament. She wanted to see Jennifer. Although she wouldn't hope, she kept an image of once again being a happy family, being able to contribute to Jennifer's formative years, telling her how much she loved her, even though she'd been gone so much. But she had no money. Tomorrow she would go to Alan McCormick and Peter Townsend to find work as a legal assistant. One of them should need help. She'd been disbarred for ethical violations. The profession considered sex with a client unprofessional. She had accepted the decision from afar as just and without complaint. Consorting with a client actively on trial was wrong, and she never thought she'd need to practice law again. Her father was a few feet away before she knew he was there. He stopped. Her legs ached from the weight as she got to her feet and faced him. I need money, she said. His laugh pierced her. Get out of my way, he said. I have nothing, she said. You deserve nothing, he said. She felt like crying in anger and frustration. It's because I'm adopted. You wouldn't do this to Elizabeth. He shoved her out of the way against a car. You could never be an Elizabeth. Lucy cried now, not in anger, but with hurt and frustration. Stop sniveling, he said. It's repulsive. He opened the car door, the edge hitting her thigh, and got in. He slammed the door shut without looking at her. Before she could gather herself to stop his leaving, he had backed out. She lifted her skirt to look at the purplish bruise that was already forming. The next morning she was at the office of Peter Townsend, a receptionist behind a glass-framed window with a slide-up pane in the center told her to sit down. It was early and only one other client was waiting. She thought Townsend's and her work together on the ups and downs of the vehicular manslaughter case had formed a permanent friendship. The door opened to the corridor to the offices. Townsend saw her, surprised, obviously uninformed she was waiting for him. He stopped some distance from where she was seated. She stood and held out her hand that he did not take, and she quickly lowered it. He looked away briefly to hide his awkwardness. You seem to be doing well, she said. Townsend nodded. I'm just back from Africa. I need work, Peter. You've been disbarred. Work as an assistant. I could do research, interviews, write drafts. Townsend shoved both hands in his pants' pockets. I don't have anything. 
full up with too many helpers, he said. His lips formed a straight line. Please, Lucy said, just until I can find something else. She saw the client was staring at them now. She was making a fool of herself. I wouldn't even if I had an opening, Townsend said. Don't come back. Why? We worked well together. I was doing my job. You didn't care? I didn't like anything about your case. I think you were guilty. We didn't hit that woman, Lucy said. Townsend shrugged. You suggested I neutralize the witness, that it was your idea. Townsend grabbed Lucy's arm and took her out into the corridor that led to the outside. He closed the door and released her. Don't ever say that in public or private. Never, you hear? It's true, Lucy said. And you're a disgraced lawyer. I hope you starve. Lucy stood frozen with a wave of intense humiliation she'd never remembered experiencing before. Then he was gone and she was alone. She took deep breaths to clear her thoughts. She'd try Alan McCormick. At least he was a former colleague. But she'd have to approach him carefully. And she'd contact Carrie Malroy, her former assistant. She must still be a friend. Carrie could help with a reasonable strategy, maybe even ask Alan in her behalf. Lucy left the building, finding a cab to take her the ten miles from downtown to Buckhead. She went directly to the offices of her former law firm. The receptionist was new, an attractive, pleasant-looking older woman with dyed brown hair. May I speak to Carrie Malroy? Lucy asked. The woman looked down, a list of names mounted in plastic and thumbtacked to the edge of her desk. I don't see Carrie Malroy, she said. She works here, Lucy said. The woman smiled. I'm new. Let me check. She went to the door that led to the corridor where the officers were. The door closed. Lucy remained standing. The door opened. Alan McCormick came out. Alan, Lucy said. McCormick stopped, his hand still on the doorknob. He stared, speechless. Could I talk to you? Lucy asked. He was still staring at her. He shook his head no, reversed direction, and closed the door behind him. How uncivil and rude. The door opened and the receptionist re-entered. I talked to the administrator, the receptionist said. Perry, is he still here? Yes. Carrie Malroy left more than a year ago for California. Can I get in touch with her, Lucy asked. The receptionist offered a slip of paper. Here's the last number Perry had for her. Lucy took the number. She didn't recognize the area code. Perry said to say hi, the receptionist said. After a few seconds of indecision, Lucy thanked the receptionist and left to return to her apartment where she could borrow a phone from a neighbor. She had not had enough money to have a phone installed yet. Carrie was pleased to hear Lucy's voice. She was working for Lou Panetta in San Francisco. I need work, Lucy said. I don't think I'll find anything here. I'm desperate. I'll ask Lou. He needs someone, Carrie said, and I know he's always respected you since law school days. Can I call you back? I don't have a phone yet. Tomorrow morning. I should have an answer, Carrie said. The next morning, Carrie said Lou would hire Lucy as a paralegal.
on a temporary basis, of course. He was looking forward to seeing her again. I'll be out as soon as I can. A couple of days, maybe, Lucy said. She hoped to get her deposit on the apartment back. Terrific. Call me. I'll pick you up at the airport. I have a place in Sausalito. Plenty of room. Lucy thanked Carrie. She almost asked for money for the flight, but she didn't want to sour their relationship. She had to find money somewhere else. She would figure out something, even if she had to walk. Chapter 38 Lucy The house where Lucy grew up with Elizabeth and their parents was the same gray with white trim, although the paint was fresh and the red-shingled roof with two stone chimneys jutting above was the same as she remembered it. Standing high above the road, the cement drive curving twice as it crossed the property to the garage that sat to the left. It was still impressive with its display of American suburban architectural features, with roots stolen from Elizabethan, Victorian, and Edwardian styles, that size and trimming spoke to considerable wealth in late 20th century America. Her time in Africa returned to her briefly, the poverty, the edge of survival, before she paid the taxi and walked up the drive. She paused as she neared the portico over the front door. She hoped that Jennifer might be playing alone in the yard so that she might see her and talk to her without dealing with the family. But that was a dream, and she forced herself to ring the front doorbell. Maybe no one was home. There was a for-sale sign stapled to a wooden stake on the front lawn. She heard no movement inside the house. She leaned forward to peer in one of the thin, tall windows that flanked the door. The rooms were bare. "'What are you doing?' a voice said behind her. It was her mother walking toward her. Lucy couldn't find words. Her mother stopped a few feet from her. We don't want you here, her mother said. Lucy felt a surge of anger. I've come to see Jennifer. I've come to see my daughter. Impossible, her mother said. She's not here. We're all moving out. Where is she? Lucy asked. You have no right to know. You've ignored her for too many years. Lucy wanted to tell her mother she couldn't have helped it. She'd been away in the Georgia mountains and in Africa. She'd always loved Jennifer. Where is she? Lucy asked. I brought her into this world. I will never let you see her, her mother said. You can't stop me. I have. There is a restraining order in effect if you come back. On what grounds? Lucy asked. That you're capable of abducting her from her father the parent who has raised her and has had custody over these years. Her mother sounded tired now, as if the strain of family was too much for her. I've got to leave again in a few days. I want to see her, Lucy said. No, Lucy. She barely remembers you. It would be cruel to invade her happy world. I would not invade. You would demand emotion she can't give. Lucy thought for a moment. That did not seem reasonable. She would not demand anything. She wanted to say hello. I'm your mommy. I love you. Don't you come close to her. I'll have you arrested. Lucy glared at her mother, but she could see no immediate action that would allow her to see Jennifer. Her mother could easily lie about Jennifer not being here. True, she had heard no sounds from the house, but it was a big place. And Jennifer could be in the garage apartment, too. 
but from a distance there were no signs of the garage apartment being used. Her mother would not lie about the restraining order. Lucy was sure that was in effect. Lucy walked by her mother without speaking, strode down to the street, turned to walk the mile to the main road, where she'd have to figure a way to get to her apartment. She did not look back, although she could feel her mother's glare. Lucy knew, almost without doubt, where Jennifer would be at the preschool both she and Elizabeth had attended, in the posh North Side Day School, where anyone who was anyone had to attend before starting private school, kindergarten, and grade school. The taxi let her out before the school was in sight, and she walked a few hundred yards to the door and entered the office. A woman she did not know was busy at the desk, flooded with papers. She was on the phone and hung up when Lucy walked in. Hello, Lucy said. I'd like to see Jennifer Osborne. I'm Lucy McMeal, her mother. Just a moment, the woman said and left the room. Lucy waited. The woman re-entered. I'm sorry, she's not available. That's outrageous. I'm her mother, Lucy said. We've been instructed not to permit you to see her. Let me speak to the owner, Lucy said. The owner must have been listening outside. She stepped in, a well-dressed middle-aged woman, unfamiliar to Lucy. I attended this school, Lucy said. Uh, before my time, the owner said. I'd like to see my daughter. That's uh, not possible. We've been alerted you might come here. I've called the authorities. She brushed by Lucy to the open door, her glare insisting that Lucy leave. Lucy paused outside the door. She would not be rejected. She looked to the only window at the front of the building and could see no one there. She turned right off the path onto the grass. She kept close to the bushes that lined the wall. On the side of the building there was a window. Standing on tiptoe, she looked in but saw only a storage room. She went around the back. A young woman was wiping down play equipment in a fenced play yard. Lucy reversed her progress again, going out front and crossing to the other side of the building. She found two windows. The first opened into reception and she avoided it. The second was higher and larger, the room for the children. She moved a rock close to the wall, and with one foot she boosted herself up so she could see comfortably. The attendant had her back to her. The children were in an irregular circle, sitting on individual floor pads, drawing on paper with crayons. She saw Jennifer immediately, tan skin, light brown hair. She could imagine the rich umber of her eyes. Jennifer moved from a sitting position to put the paper on the floor and draw stretched out. She was limber, agile, far beyond the other children. Tears welled in Lucy's eyes. She had to stop herself from calling out. A hand gripped her arm and she stumbled off a rock. Another hand gripped her other arm and she dropped her shoulder bag. Two officers held her steady as one reached down and picked up her purse, handing it to her. Lucy, uh, Mac, uh, MacMeal? one asked with a disturbing disinterest in his voice. Lucy said nothing as they walked her to the squad car and placed her in the back behind a wire mesh screen and started the engine. One officer radioed their arrest and their position. She held back her tears. She knew it was useless to argue, and they did not talk to her or read her her rights until they were at the station house. 
The apartment manager refused to refund her deposit or any of her rent. She wondered if Luke might help her. He was her husband, obligated to support. She deserved support for the past and the future. He had always seemed reasonable. He might see her argument. He certainly had enough money after years of practice. Yes, that is what she would do. She'd not be able to go to the house. She didn't know where he lived. She'd have to go back to the hospital, avoid her father, talk to Luke alone. Yes, that is what she would have to do. She called a taxi using the manager's phone. She slipped into the halls of the hospital and found Luke. He acted as if he expected her. I'm not having an easy time right now, she said. I'm still your wife, and I've never demanded support, but I need that support now. She looked away from him, somehow feeling uncomfortable with the request, although she had convinced herself it was justified. He was impassive. Don't you still have some feeling for me, Lucy asked. Luke did not speak. He took out his wallet from a jacket pocket. He slipped four $500 bills from behind a credit card in one of his credit card slots. He had expected her. He found two fifties and three twenties in a bill slot. He left the smaller bills. He handed them to her. That's all? She hoped he registered the indignation she felt. I wish you the best, he said. Then give me what I deserve. That's it, Lucy. And don't come back again. There will be no more. He walked away. She remained immobile for many seconds. Then her mind began to function again. She had enough to reach the coast. Then she'd work things out from there. I can do this, she said. I know I can. Two days later, she was on a plane to California. Chapter 39 Elizabeth It was more than two months later. Jennifer was asleep. Elizabeth was reading in the living room of the rented house when Luke came in from work. She looked to him. Need something to eat, she said. Thanks. I had something before surgery. He sat down in a chair. Jennifer okay, he asked. She's asleep. I didn't send her to school today. She didn't feel well. Her temperature was a hundred. Luke stood and went alone to Jennifer's room. He returned in a few minutes. No fever, but she's pale, don't you think? She doesn't eat well. All her favorites don't interest her. I think she's lost weight. Is she vomiting? Loose stools? No, but she sleeps almost all the time she's home. Bring her in tomorrow, Luke said. I'll arrange for Sandy Bruckner to see her. The next morning, Elizabeth took Jennifer to the hospital. Blood was drawn and tests were done. Luke left the clinic to hear Dr. Bruckner's findings. Jennifer stayed with the nurse in an exam room when Elizabeth and Luke left to greet Bruckner. Uh, she's anemic. Her white count is low, Bruckner said. From what, Luke asked. I looked at the slide. I'll have Path look at it, too. I think it's ALL. I don't understand, Elizabeth said. Luke could not speak. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, Bruckner said, a strain obvious in his voice. I'll set up a bone marrow. Is it serious? Elizabeth asked. Bruckner paused. Yes, it can be. Elizabeth hesitated. Will she die? 
We have treatments, but the outcomes are erratic. This age group does better than infants. We need hematology, Luke said. And neurology, Bruckner said. But I'll admit her on my service. Bruckner left to make arrangements for admission, and Luke used his office telephone to cancel patients and find coverage for patients who had already arrived. Elizabeth and Luke went together to walk Jennifer through the admission procedure and assure a private room where they could stay the night. Jennifer was scheduled for a bone marrow the next day. She was taken to x-ray. Elizabeth and Luke followed and went with her during the procedure. Elizabeth felt emptiness. She wanted to remain cheery for Jennifer, but her heart felt fear, and her mind imagined pain and suffering. It's going to be okay, Luke said, but he spoke with a hesitancy she'd never heard before. How can you know, she said with more anger to her despair than she wanted. You have to believe, Luke said, for Jennifer's sake. But her mind could not erase a future without Jennifer. Luke took her hand. She's lucky to have you, he said. She heard the stress in his voice now, heard his own doubts about the future. Jennifer was a bright child, with a pleasant disposition and irrepressible spirit. Why would she have this? What possible reason could there be to give her this suffering? Elizabeth still held Luke's hand. We should let Lucy know, she said. She'd want to know. Luke hesitated. She's her mother, she said. But she hasn't been her mother, Luke said. You've been her mother for two years. Lucy loves her. Lucy doesn't know how to love. The only love she knows is about her, not someone else. Elizabeth didn't know what to say. Lucy wasn't perfect, but she'd want to know about her daughter. What would it do, Luke said. Lucy'd only worry. She wouldn't know what to do. Come or not come. Then she'd decide she'd have to. Then what would she do? What would she say? Would you want her making decisions about Jennifer? Would you want her forcing her emotions on her? Jennifer might not even recognize her. Would that be fair? And trying to figure out how to feel about this strange woman who's trying to act like her mother? Elizabeth let Luke's hand go. There was nothing more to say. But she knew Lucy cared, would always care in her own way. She did not feel good about being silent, especially since Lucy was back in the States somewhere close enough to easily come to see Jennifer. She'd bring it up to Luke again when the time was right. Somehow, sometime, Lucy would have to be told. Please join me for installment three of The Spirit of Want on podcast number 34. Novels and short stories of William H. Coles are available on Kindle, ebook, audio, print, and online. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryandLiteraryFiction.com.